one of the um, one of the interesting studies that's come out, not in motor learning, but in, in cognitive, it's actually perceptual learning, um, was a study with uh, Nate Cornell and Robert Bjork. And they looked at um, people identifying painters. So if you have um, you know, someone who doesn't really know anything at all about painting would say, okay, here's a, a Rodin, you know, and he would have like six examples of Rodin pictures and then pick another painter and he would have six of those and they would have eight different artists that they would show eight different uh, paintings of and they were, each one was identifiable in style. Uh, and, and what they would do is take these 48 paintings and they would either show them in a blocked order to an individual uh, or random order to an individual. And later, they did a study where they took half of them and, and did it within an individual. So they uh, showed three of the artists in a blocked order and three of the artists in a random order. And the results were pretty much the same. And then afterwards, a couple days later, they asked them to come back and they gave them some of the original paintings and asked them to identify the artists and then gave them some new paintings by the same artists but they hadn't seen and asked if they could identify them. Uh, and what they found was at the end of, of practice, the people that were shown these paintings in a, in a blocked order were asked, how well do you think you'll be able to identify the artists two days later? And, and the results were like 85% uh, said yes. Yeah, and like only 25% of interleaved subjects said that they would be able to do it. And the results were almost flipped upside down two days later. And then they did the study, as I said, within an individual where some of them were blocked and some of them were random. And they asked the person, okay, do you think you'll be able to remember the, the ones that we presented in a blocked order better or, or an interleaved order better? And again, about 85% of them said, absolutely, the blocked order would be much better retained than the random order. And again, the results were actually flipped, you know, almost upside down. You know, when they came back, they were able to retain the ones that had been presented in an interleave order, and the ones presented in a blocked order were, they had no idea. So the, the, the important point that came out of that study was that their own intuitions about their future success were based upon how they were doing at the time. You know, this notion that immediate performance gains or immediate feeling of retrievability of the information or the artist's name gave this false illusion that they were going to have a long-term retention of it. And that the immediate sense of difficulty in retaining that information had a negative impact. They thought they weren't going to be able to retain it for the long term. When in fact, the results show just the opposite, that the illusions of learning um, were in fact quite different from the reality of learning. Uh, and I think that, it, that uh, and Bjork has done some work with, with uh, Dominic Simon that's shown similar things in learning motor skills, that uh, there's a false sense of security or false sense of, of permanent improvement when you're doing block type of practice. Uh, and on the contrary, 
there's a false sense of, of poor performance, a false sense of an absence of learning when you're doing interleave type of practice. Uh, and so getting back to the point that you asked earlier, how do you deal with your with your students on the range in a practical situation, I think you have to be upfront with them and saying, this is what we know to be a preferred way of, of teaching, a preferred way of practice, because we want to get you across the road onto the course with the things that we've been able to improve upon on, on the range. Um, and so having that, uh, that full disclosure, if you will, with your with your student that and getting them buying into the program that this is going to be paying off in the long term and we want to make the most out of the time you spend on the range uh, is the way to do it. Now that's probably going to be a bit of a sell job. Um, but I think if you truly believe that this is the the way the research uh, is headed, that that we're, we're and that the way you're teaching is, is in the right direction, then I think you have to sell that. Um, and um, and it's not just you, but we're seeing this now in all different walks of life, all different uh, situations where uh, people are training individuals for retaining skills, uh, and. And there's a push for that because people are saying, why isn't our practice becoming more effective? I, I talked with a, um, a group out in Washington, state of Washington, that were uh, training uh, police apprehension skills. Okay. Yeah, and they, their question was, um, how, how often should we do refresher training you know, in, in different types of apprehension skills? And my answer to them was, was that's the wrong question. Is how often you should be doing refreshing, refresher training. The more important question is how well are you doing it initially, because that will determine when you need to do refresher training. Yeah. And then we get into all kinds of discussion about, well, what's the what are the methods that we're using to train, and those types of, of questions really never. Had arisen to them before, um, and yet those are really the questions that are of most importance. What's the best we can do that's going to get us uh, to retain the skills for the long term? That was on my list of questions. Uh, imagine the same thing. So Police I'll ask apprehension you. skills? Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, for the winter time, I gotta you know, adjust, adjust my time frame, pick up a few extra right. bucks. Um, oh, like, is it reasonable in, in our golf culture that we do, uh, you know, the one hour a week lesson quite often? Um, it's pretty common, I think, that we do five and ten packs or, or mm -hmm. that sort of series of lessons. And the frequency that we're going to see somebody um, is about once a week and about one hour a week. It's mm -hmm. pretty much in the ballpark. Some people do a half hour lesson, 45 minutes. Some do more if it's a, a group series. But that's kind of in the ballpark of... Uh, pretty common to do a one-hour lesson once a week. Mm -hmm. Is it reasonable to think, and, and I think I'm asking that same question that the people in Washington were asking, is it reasonable to think is that frequent enough or uh, I, I think the answer is going to be, you know, if we're spending that time appropriately, then yeah, that's fine. 
Yeah. I would, if, if we go back to the conversation yeah. that, that, you know, the average golfer is not getting better, mm-hmm. does it have to do with a lot of this stuff? Or, or um, I have my own opinions. You know, the one hour a week, maybe that's great, maybe it's not, depending on how you're pushing the person off to do to practice on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's even part of the question, too, how much training the, their own. Is it about the frequency, or is it just really any golf that they do, the quality of the practice? I think the quality is, has is infinitely, more, do, right? infinitely more importance yeah. than, than the quantity. Um, do you know Dan... Dan McLaughlin, have you heard about the Dan plan? Uh, yeah. Yeah, this guy that's doing yeah. 10 hours. I met him. Okay. Real nice, real nice <laughs> kid. Uh, nice guy. Um, His mission was to get 10,000 hours. Or, yeah. You know, and that's based on, um, well, 10,000 hours. You might, your uh, um, members of PGA Canada might find this interesting. 10,000 hour rule came out of some research done by uh, Anders Ericsson. And Anders Ericsson did some studies with musicians, and I think they were piano players, uh, and they wanted to know how did the very, very best become the very best, uh, and how how did the or maybe it's violinists. Anyways, they were they're concert uh, musicians, uh, and how did the the very, very best develop their expertise. How did the ones that are really good, but not the best, how did their practice differ from the ones that were the very best? And what about the next level? You know, kind of a, that was kind of the question. So he, he got together or searched out and found these groups of individuals or people that he could categorize as experts or close to experts or whatever. And had them develop a, a reflective diary on how much they had practiced and ever since they took up the instrument. And essentially what it boiled down to is the ones that had developed the most highest level of expertise had developed that over about a 10-year period and about 10,000 hours of practice. And the ones that had not achieved that highest level of expertise but were still very good we had kind of topped out at around 6,000 hours. And, and so there was this, this kind of, and then he, and then Erickson delved uh, further into what they did, how they practiced. And this is kind of where people, uh, they attached their uh, uh, imagination to this notion of 10,000 hours. But the more important question was Erickson asked them how they practice. And what they told Erickson was that they had this very deliberate type of practice where they had a goal to be achieved and they spent X number of hours a day achieving it and the practice was not fun at all, but it was very laborious type of practice and it had a very important structure to it. Uh, but it wasn't mindless type of practice, it was this high quality type of practice in addition to being large quantity of practice. Um, and then uh, that became a feature of a book by Malcolm Gladwell and then the 10,000 hour rule has gone off the charts um, and what people have a you know the, the the short answer to this now is that people say well I need to put in 10,000 hours of practice and what the 
what's being forgotten is that it was Erickson found it was 10,000 hours of various qualitatively good type of practice that was important. Um, and I, I, I applaud Dan McLaughlin for trying to test out this notion of, of 10,000 hours, but I, I think he may have uh, missed some of the point um, about how practice should, should go about. But, but and I can't blame Dan, because Dan's actually been in contact with Anders Ericsson, so he, he knows the research, uh, okay. and he's he's uh, he's working hard at it. But the the short answer is that it's not the amount of practice per se, but the, the quality of practice. Um, so back to your original question about um, how often practice should be, and and uh, I think it's it's part of the answer we're going to talk about when we talk about feedback. You know, and what what's the person getting out of you, out of your time, mm -hmm. and how are they applying that to try and improve their own knowledge? Okay, so when you, well, let me ask you a question. When you're working with a person, how much time do you spend uh, giving them feedback? And how much time, what do you do with them, I guess is my question tried to take the approach certainly in the last few years and, and looking at your work and the work of others that I try to shut my mouth a whole lot more often <laughs> is... Uh, well, there's a conundrum in that though. There's a conundrum in that because some people yeah. probably think that they're paying you <laughs> to hey, talk. Trust me, Tim. Your, your work is making my business tougher, I think, long term. <laughs> but it's the, it's the same as the learning versus performance. Yeah. From my business perspective, Maybe my current performance doesn't look good because my students are just okay right now and they're just maybe a little frustrated and mm -hmm. they're paying me $100 an hour to right. stand there and tell them how smart I am. So in the short term, my performance doesn't really look that great. Mm -hmm. But in the long term, I think I'm, I'm just realizing now, today as we talk, that I'm developing skills. As a coach, I think the business is developing skills to actually increase performance. My performance is just the, the performance of the student down mm -hmm. the road. Um, I would say to answer your question for style, I I will challenge them and, and uh, I think my students appreciate it more than my wife does at home when I'm mm -hmm. testing them out a little bit and, and just ask questions and ask them what they think and um, try to keep it, uh, and we're going to go to the, the feedback side of things and, and maybe even talk about internal mm -hmm. versus external sure. uh, feedback and that, that mm -hmm. kind of mindset. Um, so with, within the time frame I have, I try not to give them the whole academic list of things of, of why we're doing it, but right. guide them along that pathway. Mm -hmm. um, uh, most recently, I had some good success, and Adam Young, I think you might have seen Adam's name. Yes. Uh, uh, through Cordy's site. He's done some... Yeah, he doesn't have a book on practice. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's a great summary of a mm -hmm. lot of work, uh, and he's done a great job compiling it, so I just cherry pick off. Mm -hmm. His ideas, and one of the big things I, I do is um, really frequent 10 ball tests. Mm -hmm. And I give somebody a challenge out of 10, right. and it might not even be golf balls. We might be in a fairway bunker just taking divots, paying right. attention to where the club hits the sand. Um, and we do out of 10, and if they get three or less, we're going to have to make the, the task a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. If they get seven or more, we can increase the challenge, and right in the mid spot where they're getting half the time successful attempts, half the time 
ones that they need to learn from, mm -hmm. that means that we've, we've created a challenge that's good for them. So I kind of yeah. push them off to that, and then we review it after and and, um, and make the appropriate adjustments and keep going with the practice. I really like the, the notion of, of um, practice games like that, because mm -hmm. it, it, it's a way of simulating the challenge that occurs out on the golf course, plus it also makes practice fun, yeah, too, totally. which I, I think whenever you can um, uh, get people enthused about trying to make improvements, you know, and, and having fun at doing that, that's, that's part of the... Um, there was a TED talk, and I can't remember the name of the girl, she had a and I've watched a lot of them, so I might confuse a couple. But she's a, a gamer programmer. Mm -hmm. and she talks about learning development with humans and trying to create uh, challenges for people, like a video game, mm -hmm. like the levels in a video game. And you want to start, you know, you're starting at level 1.1 if you right. go back to, to The Legend of Zelda or whatever. Right. I can't remember all the levels, but you know, it's kind of easy at the start. And you get in there, and there's just one little tough thing where you have to get a coin and you get that and move on. Mm -hmm. And there's people sit and play video games till all hours of the day mm -hmm. and night because of that level. And and uh, based on some of that work, and, and Adam does a great job talking about that, is pushing people um, in that same mindset. And if we do need to do Maybe it is roughly 10,000 hours. I'm going to guess those violinists in mm -hmm. Erickson study. Yeah, a lot of it did suck. And mm -hmm. I did a lot of golf practice myself, and I've seen others. And a lot of it's no fun. But I think there's, you know, somewhere in there, if I'm going to do that many hours of video games or golf or mm -hmm. violin, uh, whether I consider it fun or not, there's an addiction quality almost to right. it. Is that right. I need to get this. And right. it's driving me nuts. And I might throw the controller off the TV screen. Right. But to be able to stick with it long enough to mm -hmm. actually develop the skill. There's, again. A, there's a, um, a guy that I met a while ago um, named Trent Warner. And he's got a book all on practice games. Yeah. And, and I, 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 he sent me a copy of the book, and it's really quite terrific, I think. Yeah. It's really good in that. It, and again, a, a lot of his games are... Are, uh, and drills are oriented towards play-specific behavior. Right. You know, the idea that these these are the kind of situations you're going to encounter on the golf course and, and are going to have to face and deal with, uh, and and yet they're all on the on the range. And it's, it's it, again, it's getting back to that play-specific type of behavior that um, if you can simulate that on the range or anywhere. Then you're going to be, um, I think, benefiting the long term. It's a challenge, certainly, on a personal note, that trying to do that. But then somebody flips on television at home, and the golf channel will tell you that in this 30-minute lesson, so and so <laughs> picked up 70 yards. Um, uh, the culture does not totally uh, aid this this mindset. I guess we got to start somewhere. Right? Yeah, I, I. I, I I don't know how to, to, to deal with that. I, I um, uh, my own view is 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 to try and, and go back to the research yeah. uh, and say um, when I encounter people that are, are talking about or, you know espousing block type of practice, uh, you know I guess my question would be, what's your evidence? 
Mm. You know, and or, I, I think how, how did he hit it three months later? Yeah, but how? What is your evidence that mm. you know? And a lot of times they may come back and say, "Well, um, this person did it that way. Look how good they are." And I guess my question to follow up that would be, "Well, how do you know they couldn't have been that much better? Yeah, if you had done it, yeah, in a in a way that is more uh, compatible with what, what the research suggests." So um, could have been better. Could have spent time doing other things. Might not have got injured. That's right. That's right. All things you got That's to consider, right. right? Yeah. You know what's the equivalent? I mean, all practice is probably going to be beneficial, but how many hours of block practice is equivalent to one hour random practice? Uh, so. Well, give me a quote so I can put it up on my <laughs> winter school, and, and I'll stamp your name at the bottom. So if anyone. Yeah. Uh, criticizes me. No idea. Yeah. <laughs> Let's give it something like a ten to one ratio, and then then we'll be off. So that's, races, right? that's a good start with. Yeah, but it's like nice to, round numbers. Yeah, I'd like to, um, you know. So to go back to your question, when I see those um, on uh, on the internet, I just kind of cringe a bit sometimes and say, <laughs> okay, what's your evidence? Right. Okay, you you can say that, and maybe. In the medical literature, it's eminence-based versus evidence-based. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, eminence-based <laughs> is the old guy with the white coat yeah. and the, the Marcus Welby type of uh, That's right. attitude. And the evidence-based is is what they're teaching in medical schools now. What actually? Okay, what the what the research suggests, and go with the evidence, uh, not with what a prominent person says you, know, right. you should do. I think in that case, you know, I can't fault some of those people and not to name names, but um, if you're just going to take advantage of that human's intuition for if you're talking learning versus performance, well, geez, I need to get this now. I've only got so, so mm -hmm. a certain amount of time to play golf or practice mm -hmm. golf and I play golf 20 times a year. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, that, that makes sense to me. I need mm -hmm. to perform great now and then just ride that off into the sunset. And uh, I suppose we just have to keep sharing the message of the of the evidence that's contrary to that, and um, long term, you got to be patient, I guess, that that it'll spill itself out and show that. You know. I agree. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's you know, it, yeah, it's it's um, um, as you say, it, it's a it's not a, a simple answer, and certainly. All types of practice is better than no practice. Um, I think I've used that quote from you for the last <laughs> few years. I remember you said something about the law of practices. Just yeah. do something and you're probably going to get better at it. You're probably so, going to get better at it. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, when we're talking about um, individuals that don't have all the time in the world, then the issues of efficiency and effectiveness become more important. There's, yeah. our, there's our quote time. right there. Then. Yeah. Time. And you're especially going to know this when your son gets a little older and your wife gets back to work. Right. You're not going to have as much time. No. Every minute yeah. counts, right? Yeah.